Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 120, Drawing Lines. It's only been a couple days since I recorded episode 119, so no new patrons. But as always, big thank you to everyone who donates. Uh, It's been really, you know, the donations have been really high lately somehow, despite the pandemic and and, uh, kind of worldwide financial calamity and everything. So I'm glad to see so many of my patrons are doing well enough to keep supporting us and wishing you all the best. So let's get right into it. Last time, we pretty neatly covered the year 1861 and saw the growing power of the Uniate Church curbed when its leader was forced into exile. Overall, the intense fighting between the Bulgarian church advocates, Bulgarian independent church that is, and the patriarchate really, yeah, it picked up as more Bulgarians publicly denounced the patriarch. As a result, Makiril Polsky and a few of his allies were again forced into exile. The Russians are also encouraging Bulgarian immigration to Crimea to fulfill their needs for you know, workers and people uh, to, to occupy those territories as many Tatars are leaving for the Ottoman Empire and even sometimes for Bulgaria. And the Russian government finally ended state serfdom, though this has already begun to cause some unrest. Rokovsky was traveling between Odessa and Belgrade, working with the Serbian government to plan an uprising. And lastly, Sultan Abdul Majid I died and his brother Abdul Aziz came to the throne. So it was a busy year. But now it's time for 1862. The first day of the year saw the new Sultan appoint a new head of the Uniate Church by decree. Petr Arabjiski was from what's now the town of Rokovsky in Thrace. He had studied in Rome, but actually refused the position as head of the Uniate Church because the Uniate Church was under the Pope, and its rights were completely different despite that fact, and Arabjiski was a Catholic. And so, yeah, although the Catholic and Union churches both recognized the Popes, you know, the the similarities kind of ended there, and he wasn't really willing to completely change his religion and all the rights and all the things that he kind of did on a daily basis as a part of his religious practice in order to lead this Union church. So, for now, the Union church remained leaderless. Unsurprisingly, January also saw yet more raising tensions between the Bulgarian church and uh, patriarch church kind of advocates. On the 5th of that month, Greek priests bribed a guard and with his help tried to break into the Bulgarian church in Plovdiv to hide the holy water. It's a real kind of silly caper kind of situation. And despite how silly that sounds now, the discovery of this plot significantly escalated tensions between Bulgarians and Greeks in the city of Plovdiv. Now, in Tornovo, Stoyan Chumakov began an initiative in which a special holiday mass would be organized in Tornovo in the St. Stephen Church, reaffirming their position against the Patriarchate. The Russians were angry about this uh, and basically saw these efforts as sabotaging all of their careful diplomacy to try to kind of resolve the church issue. A classic situation, right? The the diplomats are trying to construct a delicate agreement and the actual people are just, you know, doing what they're going to do without a real sense of what 
diplomats are doing and everyone's getting in everyone's way. Also around that same time, the Metropolitan of Adrianople, Kirill, created a project to hopefully resolve the church question, but the Russians torpedoed it. So clearly Russian diplomats did not appreciate not being controlled of the situation. They were trying to find a resolution which best benefited them, and really the Bulgarians getting involved was rather inconvenient for them. Now, that's me editorializing a bit, but that's my take. But there's no denying that many Bulgarians did strongly desire Russian help. On January 2nd, Rokovsky himself wrote to Knyaz Gorchakov, assuring him that Bulgarians were attached to Russia and that they hoped dearly for Russian assistance in achieving their independence. Meanwhile, though, Romania was making its own strides. Remember, we discussed two episodes ago how Prince Kuza unified Wallachia and, and Moldavia and into Romania as a kind of personal union, getting the Ottoman and Russian governments to agree, although technically only for Kuza's lifetime. Well, on February the 3rd, a conservative government took control in the newly formed Romanian state, and the United Assembly convened on the 5th in the new capital of Bucharest. This government was dominated by conservatives because the franchise, i.e. the ability to vote, was so limited in Romania that it essentially guaranteed conservative victory. The problem was that Romania desperately needed reforms, and the conservatives were against those reforms. In particular, much like Bulgaria, Romania needed agrarian reform. The, essentially, won't go into too much detail now, but who controlled the land and the way the land was distributed and the way that affected peasants versus landlords was all terribly kind of inefficient and was a potential cause of a lot of unrest. And so this is a, a frequent problem we'll see as most Balkan states become independent. They have to really address agrarian reform. And as we'll discuss in detail later, this often led to radical agrarian movements. Now, Kuza himself was a reformer. He was an advocate for reform, and he had actually participated in the 1848 revolution. So he was definitely a bit on the liberal side. But, well, he had a problem. Now, he disliked the conservatives who were blocking the reforms that he himself saw as being so necessary. But he also really disliked the liberal faction. But for now, he still saw the liberals as his greatest chance to enact the reforms that Romania needed. In any case, though, this was going to be difficult. In particular, for Romania, about 25% of the land in the, control, in the country was actually controlled by monasteries. Now, to be clear, these weren't even local monasteries, but were mostly places like Mount Athos or even monasteries in Jerusalem. On top of this, the peasants were increasingly angry about their high obligation to the landowners who were electing that conservative government. But just imagine this. So, you know, you have this newly elected Romanian state and 25% of the land is owned by foreigners. And so the profits of that land are not taxed by the Romanian state and are basically taken abroad. Now, uh, imagine something similar where, you know, taken a, a country today where in essence, 25% of the economy is untaxable and profits, you know, foreign corporations that don't really invest in your own country. And you can see why it's a bit of a problem. Now, Governments in Wallachia and Moldavia have been trying and failing to address these agrarian issues ever since the end of Fenariot rule about four decades earlier. Yelovich describes the situation, stating, quote, The provinces naturally wished to get hold of these rich lands and their revenues, but this action was not so easily taken. The heads of the monasteries argued that they were not subject to the jurisdiction of the state. Their stand was supported by Russia, 
who wished to do nothing to weaken the ecumenical patriarchate at Constantinople. All classes in the principalities opposed the special privileges of the monasteries and their holding of such vast territories. The Romanian clergy resented this remnant of Greek domination. The boyars hoped to secure the property for their own exploitation. The peasants knew that those who worked on these ecclesiastical lands were worse off than those in private estates, end quote. So it's, it's kind of remarkable that, you know, despite all the deep uh, divisions and fractures within uh, the Romanian society and politics, basically everyone agrees that this is a bad situation, that uh, they, shouldn't be, they shouldn't allow these monasteries to control all this land. A few months later in June, that same conservative prime minister, though, was assassinated after denying Romanians the right to gather and commemorate the 1848 revolution. Cusa took this opportunity to point the head of the Liber Liberal Party to run the government and hopefully enact those needed reforms. However, the Liberal leader wasn't really interested in this and instead wanted to focus on reforming the health system. After just a year in office, Cusa was just fed up and replaced the liberal leader with another liberal leader from Moldavia. Now, at this point, the agrarian reforms could really begin in earnest, or at least that was the idea. However, negotiations dragged on with Russia mediating. Finally, in December of 1863, Cusa just lost patience and took action. The prince declared that the land simply no longer belonged to the monasteries. The Ottomans and the great powers all protested, but were basically told that this is an internal matter and no one really seemed willing to push any harder. And so Romania sort of in a fait accompli and ended the, the ownership of this land. Now, the Patriarchate was offered payment for the land, but they refused on principle. And as a result, Romania never actually had to pay for any of it and the state suddenly found itself with substantially more tax revenue. However, what would be done with that land was an even bigger issue, as you, as you can imagine, and we'll have to discuss that later. Now, this loss for the Patriarchate led to the Ottoman Ministry of Foreign Affairs pressuring Patriarch Joachim II to resign. Ironically, his successor would also have to resign in a few years due to the Patriarchate's ongoing failure to successfully navigate that Romanian crisis. Okay, now going back to 1862. March of that year saw the young Vasilevsky leaving the monastery where he had been a monk to join the first Bulgarian legion being formed by Rakovsky in Belgrade. Rav Rakovsky was planning for it to be the center of a future military formation of about a thousand volunteers who would begin the liberation of Bulgaria from the Ottomans. But in the near term, it was possibly going to participate in the, at this point, still ongoing war between the Ottomans and Montenegro. The legion soon received a donation of 250 gold coins from the Bulgarians of Braila. You'll remember that town at the mouth of the Danube where it's in uh, Moldavia, but has a lot of Bulgarians and has been a center of Bulgarian kind of revolutionary activity. But, well, this is a very generous donation, but within a few months, the treasurer of the Bulgarian legion in Belgrade and Rakovsky's nephew were attacked and robbed and, well, they stole all the money. And so the legion didn't have any funds anymore. But during these spring and early summer days, plans were still being prepared for a full-scale rebellion. Rakovsky sent emissaries to Turnovo and to the Slevin kind of regions to prepare the population for a coming rebellion. According to Rakovsky, the legion needed to enter Bulgarian territory at the very same time the rebellion was to begin. But first, other events intervened. 
In early June of 1862, fighting erupted in Belgrade between the local population and the Ottoman garrison. You'll remember that Serbia for a little while has been trying to convince the Ottomans to remove its garrisons there. Now, Serbia, again, attempted to expel Ottoman garrisons and administrators, which had been allowed to remain there because of a previous treaty. However, Serbia failed in this, and Belgrade was bombarded by the Ottomans. The Bulgarian legion helped fight the Ottomans, winning local acclaim for their bravery. In particular, this was when Vasil Levski won his Levski nickname, which essentially means something like lion-like. Despite all of his bravery in the fighting, uh, this was actually, you know, his first taste of battle and where really his status as kind of a hero legend begins. Still, despite all of this, the Ottomans were victorious. The Ottomans then pressured Serbia to formally disband the Bulgarian legion. Unable to resist this pressure, the organization was, instead, expelled from Belgrade in September. Afterwards, the center of Bulgarian revolutionary activity shifted to Bucharest. During the last months of the year, Rakovci worked with Danubian towns to help move weapons from Russia to Serbia. So clearly he didn't take the Serbian exile too personally, understanding the Serbian diplomatic position vis-a-vis -vis the Ottomans and the great powers and that Serbia really just didn't have a choice here. Now, while the fighting had been going on in Belgrade, a group was formed in and around Turnovo under the leadership of Haji Stavri Koinov. The revolutionaries organized a cheta of about 70 people which headed towards Gabrovo. The plan was for the cheta's actions to lead to the proclamation of a rebellion. However, this cheta, this group, this kind of armed band was pretty small and quickly was forced to disperse by the Ottoman authorities. Now, by the spring of 1862, we had a few other minor developments on the church question. Now, the Bulgarians of Constantinople filed another plea to the new Grand Vizier demanding an independent church, and, well, the Ottomans commissioned a mixed Bulgarian-Greek committee to examine the church question, even though, well, we already know what's going to happen. So, you know, my first thought here is don't hold your breath. And, unsurprisingly, the commission finished its work a year later with nothing really resulting from it. But in the meantime, the Pope was trying to help the Uniate Church recover after the loss of its leader. In September, a Uniate Church delegation with Dragan Sankov among them visited a man named Aksenti Veleshki, who had worked for Bulgarian Church Independence and had therefore been exiled to Izmit. Veleshki had been an opponent of the Uniate Church, but the delegation was trying to convince him to accept the union with papal authority in exchange for being made the head of the Uniate Church. But he didn't just say no, he just completely denounced the idea, had wanted nothing to do with it and so the Uniate Church remained at square one. Now, in the spring of 1863, the revolutionaries were at it again. Rakovsky traveled to Athens and the capital of Montenegro on a political mission to determine whether a union between Serbia, Greece, and Montenegro for common action against the Ottomans might be possible. However, his visits convinced him that it would be impossible for them all to collaborate because of conflicting territorial ambitions. Later that year, Rakovsky settled in Bucharest. And well, this is a common problem with Balkan collaboration, collaboration between the Balkan states. You know, nearly every state in the region has overlapping territorial claims, making true collaboration exceptionally difficult. There are only a few cases like, say, Serbia and Romania, where there really aren't any competing claims and therefore no real cooperation issues. Now, the way this issue is eventually addressed will have grave consequences for Bulgaria, but that's far into the future. 
But Rakovsky still believed in the power of Balkan collaboration despite all of his recent experience. While in Bucharest, Rakovsky became the editor of a political newspaper arguing for democracy and collaboration between Bulgarians and Romanians and was printed in both languages. It even toyed with the idea of unifying the two states into a single country. Well, and this didn't come out of nowhere. If you'll remember, this was a kind of early example of, well, we'll, we'll see there in the coming decades, there will be many proposals for a kind of larger Balkan unions or federations, and we'll discuss those. But this also had ties back to the Second Bulgarian Empire, which in many ways was a kind of union between Vlachs, i.e. Vlachians, and Bulgarians. So, you know, it made sense somewhat politically, and there was a historical basis for the whole plan. But a lack of funds meant that this newspaper only ever published 10 issues. Still despite this, Rakosi was still getting plenty of attention. On the 8th of April 1864, Ali Pasha wrote a letter to Kuza asking him to please stop the newspaper and banish Rakosi from Bucharest. However, Kuza and Rakosi were developing a very good relationship, and so the Romanian leader refused to do anything to stop him. Now, Speaking of backstabbing and ambitions, that spring, Vasilevsky also returned to Karlovo after spending some time in Bucharest. Obviously, the whole Bulgarian Legion thing hadn't really worked out. He was now quite a different man than the one who had left Karlovo many years earlier to become a monk. Levsky was battle-tested and a true revolutionary. Not everyone, though, appreciated his transformation, specifically his uncle Basil. Basil was a kind of higher abbot at the Hilandar Monastery, and had used his position to ensure Levski was trained as a monk and who had actually employed the young man nearly a decade previously. But now Basil reported his nephew to the Ottoman authorities, leading to Levski's arrest and imprisonment in Plovdiv. Fortunately for him, though, after just three months, he was released with the help of a Bulgarian doctor and a local Russian diplomat. Then, on Easter of 1864, Levski formally renounced his vows as a monk by cutting his own hair. He then became a teacher in a village near Karlovo. Now, it may sound like he changed a bit after his imprisonment with the whole giving up of the, the monk vow thing, vow thing, but, well, he wasn't, despite all this and despite him settling this village, he was still a committed revolutionary. But it seems maybe he wanted the authorities to think that he wasn't a committed revolutionary anymore and that he was settling down. But he did continue to give shelters to rebels in this village while he was being a teacher. So he was just kind of keeping his revolutionary activities on the down low for, the, for now. Now on the church front, priests in Turnovo filed a plea to the sultan asking for the freeing of Ilarion Melchiorio and his fellow exiles. However, the Ottoman government was not willing to move on the issue at this point. They did hold the first of three church councils on resolving the Bulgarian issue. The next two would be one year later, and then the final one three years later. But only Greeks were chosen to participate, and so you aren't going to be shocked that nothing really resulted from these councils. Still, a year later, Makiriopolsky and Valeshki were freed from exile and settled back in Constantinople, both signing papers saying that they would not serve in a church until the Bulgarian church independence question was finally settled. But there was one significant event for Bulgarians in Constantinople that year. On the 16th of September, a New York merchant named Christopher Robert founded a Christian college in the city. While today, there are American universities around the world, including the one I attended for a year in Bulgaria, this was really the first such institution. 
While its initial class was three Englishmen and one American, ultimately many prominent Bulgarians, including four prime ministers, would graduate from Robert College. Another event in the summer of 1864 was that also kind of a, a useful reminder that many Bulgarians still sided with the Ottomans on the patriarch uh, kind of issues of church and governance. In fact, here we see the very beginnings of the liberal conservative split, which will eventually kind of define Bulgarian politics. The liberals in this case were more pro-Ottoman. While they did want an independent Bulgarian church, they thought that it should be granted by the Ottomans and not kind of unilaterally declared. They argued that negotiating with the patriarchate was useless, and it was with Ottoman secular authorities that they could find a solution. So this is an important distinction when you're looking at the conservatives versus the liberals, that in many ways at this point, they want the same things. They simply kind of disagree of, about the tactics. In general, though, the, the liberals framed the issue around one of progress instead of history, i.e. they thought Bulgaria should have its own church, not simply because it historically had had its own church, but because this was a reform and was part of the broader Ottoman Tanzimat reforms in their eyes. So put another way, their concerns were primarily material. They saw ensuring material progress as more important than symbolic progress. This is an idea we'll see repeated by the agrarians in the early 20th century. Anyways, it's in this context that an emerging political of the context of an emerging political uh, liberal movement that on the 25th of July, a newspaper called Turkey began publication in Constantinople. It was pro-government and edited by a name, man named Nikola Genovic. Now, the first article discussed the desire for an understanding between the Bulgarians and the Sultan, referring to the Sultan as the father and denouncing rebels against him. But while painting Genovic as kind of a, a villain or, or just sort of generally pro-Ottoman and sort of a traitor to the Bulgarians is easy, the story is actually pretty complex and quite interesting. Now, the newspaper clearly stated its belief that Western Europe was the only true source of civilization and that the Ottomans should continue their reforms. In fact, the newspaper would actually be suspended after it criticized the Ottoman legal system. So, in other words, again, this newspaper wasn't just the Ottomans are good and we shouldn't rebel against them. It was we should become we should be becoming more like Western Europe. And the most effective way to make that happen is actually with Ottoman cooperation. Now, wrapping up all the kind of chronological events, I want to finish up this episode by talking about some more general changes that were going on during this period. Now, historian Ivan Ilchev notes how, quote, food also gradually increased in variety and Bulgarians began to use hitherto unknown fruits and vegetables, end quote. So around this period, roughly, rice farming came to the Maritza Valley, eggplant and beans became more popular over the past few centuries, and potatoes, which had only arrived in the 1830s, were finally getting some popularity, particularly in the more mountainous areas. Tomatoes also began to be eaten around the second half of the 19th century, as Bulgarians, like most Europeans, were initially very skeptical of this weird red fruit from the New World. Still, Ilchev notes that on the base, the Bulgarian diet remained a combination of garlic, onions, lentils, peas, cabbage, and spinach, accompanied by the ever-present Bulgarian yogurt. Now, Scholler, writing in his new book on 19th century travelers to Bulgaria, notes how, quote, many travelers were turcophobic to the bone and contributed much to the image of the Balkans as uncivilized and barbarous. The picture they presented us was with 
there was therefore one of an utter lack of civilization, backwardness, and barbarism. It extended usually to both Turkish and Slavic inhabitants, for the Turks were considered savages by nature, and the Slavic population was seen as brutalized by the neglect or malice of the Turks. Others, like Fanny Blunt, who was a British woman who lived in Plovdiv in the early 1860s, focused on the Bulgarians as uncivilized and innately barbarian. She wrote that, quote, it will take a long time for the, for the Bulgarian nation to shake off the innate barbarism of its nature. The cruelty and intolerance of the Bulgarians are all the more regrettable since they possess certain good qualities. Like the rest of the races of the Near East, the sense of humor and rectitude are the least developed of their virtues. End quote from her and from that whole section. So I thought this was pretty interesting. I'm slowly reading this book by Scholler right now, and we'll include some more of these quotes. Uh, as, as frustrating it is to see the kind of unfair characterizations of Bulgarians by outsiders, I think, of course, it's very important to understand them, particularly because Western European public opinion of Bulgaria is going to gradually become very important. Now, also, while I've mentioned before, I did find a nice quote in Misha Glenny's book, which points out why I distinguish between Turks and Ottomans, which, I, yeah, I've, I've noted before, but, you know, I, because I'm reading more and more primary sources, and basically every primary source just uses the term Turk, while I use the term Ottoman, I wanted to kind of delve into that a bit more. Now, Glenny writes, quote, in Ottoman society, the words Turk or Turkish were essentially derogatory. A member of the elite would consider himself an Osmanli, while the language he would speak was Ottoman, a highly stylized version of Turkish with considerable Arabic influence. Kabaturce, coarse Turkish, was the tongue of the Anatolian peasantry who were known as Turks. End quote. Now, the term Turk wouldn't really lose its derogatory status until the 20th century when Atatürk embarked on his campaign to create a Turkish national identity and state to replace the Ottoman Empire. So I'm not using Ottoman instead of Turk to kind of inflate the egos of those long dead elites, but to kind of remind us that the officials carrying out the business of the Ottoman Empire were not all ethnic Turks. Um, I think the best modern analogy for this is referring to everyone from the Soviet Union as Russian. True, the Russians were the largest ethnic group and largely dominated politics of the Soviet Union, but doing so is simply factually wrong. Uh, even though, you know, overwhelmingly primary sources will refer to, you know, the Russians and the Russian soldiers and things, but, you know, there were Lithuanians and there were Uzbeks and, and all kinds of other people in the Soviet Union. And I don't think it's quite fair to kind of pretend they weren't there. Now, Scholler also notes how prior to 1878, Bulgaria, interestingly enough, was not viewed as a kind of in-between place, somewhere between the kind of Europe and the Orient. And this is how we're kind of used to seeing the Balkans portrayed. Schuller points out that, you know, in this period we're covering right now, in the 1860s, Bulgaria simply was the Orient. You know, Bulgaria was not the other Europe. Bulgaria was the Orient. It was Turkey. And again, I only just got my hands on this book, and I'm going to try to pull some more insights from these 19th century travelers as we go along. And well, that's where we're going to wrap up today. The Uniate Church is still floundering, looking for leadership. The Serbs are trying to assert themselves, and it's not going that well while the Bulgarian revolutionary movement is being forced to move its kind of center of operations to Romania. There, the prince is finally beginning to find success in enacting vital reforms. Robert College has been founded in Constantinople, and the division between liberal and conservative movements in Bulgaria is just beginning to coalesce. Next time, we'll focus a lot on Mithat Pasha, 
as he and other Ottoman administrative reformers are going to start to make pioneering changes that will really transform much of Bulgaria. So you can look forward to that. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. And thank you all for listening. I'll catch you in the next one.